Well, there is something I want to say to you, and I want to make sure you hear it. <laughs> if I were talking to uh, the Cubbies, those are the little three- and four-year-olds who come to our Awana program on Wednesday night, if I were talking to them and I had something I really wanted to make sure they heard, I would tell them that they must be sitting down with their bottoms in the chair, <laughs> and I would say, look at me, and I'd wait until they were all looking at me, and I'd say it again if necessary. Now, I know you probably think that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment to have to look at me, but they don't really seem to mind too much. I might even tell them to raise their hand if they were listening. And I would do all of that to make sure I had their attention, and then I would say what I had to say. Now, I won't do that here. Instead, I, uh, I told you how I'd get the cubbies' attention, and I think now maybe I, I have yours. And what I want to say to you, the thing I want to tell you, the thing I really want you to hear is that you are a vital link. Or I could say you're an essential element. Or how about this one? You are an important component. Now, of course, you don't know yet um, what I'm talking about or what I mean by that. But as I was praying about today's message, as I was asking God just what it was he wanted to say to you today, I believe that is it, that he would want you to know that you are a vital link, an essential element, an important component. And I certainly believe you are. Yet before we can go any further, and even before you know what I'm getting at, and even though it might sound a little contradictory to say it, you need to also know, though you are a vital link, you are not indispensable. God in his wisdom and grace has made you a part of something, a, a significant part of something, where I could say he has placed you where you are so you may do your part, which is weighty, and momentous and meaningful and eternal, but he is not tied to you. If you should choose not to do your part, um, he'll accomplish his purpose some other way. Should you be ashamed of the role he offers you, well, he has others he can use. The substitutes won't be as effective as you, would have been. That's why he offered you the part in the first place. And you should realize that there are consequences to choosing yourself over God's plan, consequences for both you and others. Yet God's resourceful. Maybe you can find some solace in that if you opt out. Or you could embrace your role and do your part and so fulfill one of God's great purposes for your life. You are a vital link if you're willing. Now, you want to know what I'm talking about, of course, but I can't tell you that, not quite yet. There are some other things that I have to tell you first, and, and then you can hear what you're waiting to hear, but not before. To truly understand what it means to be this vital link, you, you need to see those other things which are part of the same chain. 
the other links with which you join forces in order to accomplish God's plan. And those other links, like you, are vital. But unlike you, they are indispensable. They must be in the chain or nothing can happen. If you sit out, God can find the stand-in, but there's no substitute for these other things. And to discover just what they are, I'm going to invite you to join me so that you can see what God wants of you. I would like you to join me once again in the book of Romans, where this time we'll be looking in chapter 1, but at verses 14 through 17. Now, as we uh, make our way through these few verses, and they really are packed full of meaning, you likely won't see, or at least you won't fully appreciate, the part that God has made for you. Uh, it's not until we kind of get to the end of the passage and then maybe bring in a little more information that I think it, it becomes clear. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, most of whom he's never met, although he knows some of them. In, in the immediately preceding verses, he told the Romans why he wanted to visit them in particular. And here he's telling them in broader uh, reasons uh, the motivation that he has for all that he does. It's a motivation which results in things like his desire to visit them. And the first thing that we see in these verses is that Paul felt an obligation to the lost world, an obligation that moved him to want to visit Rome. And so we read in verses 14 and 15, I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. See, Paul felt an obligation to the lost, to the lost everywhere, even those in Rome. And he felt that obligation because he had an obligation to them. Now, I have to tell you, I'm really glad for what this passage teaches us. Often when we talk about sharing uh, good, good news with other people, we point out that we're commanded to go by Jesus, and we are. <laughs> and we also explain that those outside of the faith are in great need. They're, they're lost, and they're dying, and they're undone. And without the gospel, they have no hope, and that too is true. But Paul has added another element to our understanding. We are obligated to the lost, not because they have done something for us which puts us in their debt. That's not it at all. I mean, what Christ has done for us, that puts us in his debt, and hence we're obligated to obey his commands to go. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. What Paul's telling us is that we must help those who are on the outside because we owe it to them. There's a kind of a spiritual law here that those who have should share with those who do not have. That's the obligation that Paul was under. Now, we as Americans, I think we ought to understand this. Uh, at least the people of my generation and previous generations certainly had a sense of it. We understood that we who live in freedom should want that same kind of freedom for other people. And in some ways, because of that, we're obligated to them. To help them gain their freedom, if we can, 
and if, and I understand it's a big if, if they really want to be free. We're obligated to the lost, to those who are on the outside. Now, if there was, were an economic or social we would have a lot more to say on the matter. We'd need to talk about the rights of the laborer and the rights of ownership. Uh, we couldn't overlook the importance of work and the part it plays in character development. Uh, the damage that's done to a human being when he or she can work but refuses to, and yet they're supported in their dereliction. But this isn't an economic or a social debate. This is a spiritual matter, and, and the laws here in the spiritual realm differently. When it comes to the lost, God commands us to go. They are in great need of the gospel, and we owe it to them. And it's as simple and as complex as that. Now, there's a little bit more to understand here uh, before we go on. It says, Paul uses two phrases uh, when he talks about the lost. He calls them the Greeks and the non-Greeks and the wise and the foolish. Now, he's not really talking here about nationalities, whether someone was Greek or not. He's talking about culture. In fact, the word the NIV translates non-Greek uh, is actually in the original language barbaros, from which we get our word barbarian. And so to put it in modern American, we could say, or we could paraphrase this, that we're obligated to the refined hoity-toity and the redneck. And as for the wise, well, maybe they're not so very smart after all because they, in their wisdom, have rejected God. And the foolish, they're not merely those people who don't know any better, but the obstinate. Those who refuse to use the mind that God has given them, and they simply prefer themselves to common morality. And yet, both of those phrases are intended to be kind of all-encompassing. They're like bookends, holding everything in between. And what they contain is the best and the worst of humanity. But even the very best is not so very good, and all are in need of redemption. And between those bookends, well, that's where we were before we came to Christ, before Christ saved us. And so we dare not start thinking that we're better than others. I mean, it's to be hoped that we're living for the Lord, but we do so in the power of the Spirit. And had we been left to, to our own devices, no matter how hard we might have tried, we were lost. It's disastrous for us to look down on others instead of seeing ourselves in them. And as for the lost, though they're culpable for their sin, they're merely living as the lost live, and we ought not to be too surprised or offended by that. Of course, that doesn't mean these poor, lost, miserable sinners, trapped in their self-conceit, their own wisdom, or intoxicated by their own lusts, desires, and selfishness, will appreciate us for trying to share the good news. But what does that matter? We're under an obligation. We owe the lost something. We owe them the gospel. Now, when we come to verse 16, which is really the central 
uh, part of the text we're looking at, but it's really also a summary in one verse of the whole book of Romans. It's a passage that would do anyone good to learn it by heart. Paul tells us something about the gospel, about the good news concerning Jesus Christ that he died to pay for our sins, something we need to hear. He tells us there is real power in the gospel. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The gospel is power. It's the power of God. It's not merely an invitation, though it does invite. It's not just advice, although one would be well-advised to heed it. It's not just something telling others to lift themselves up because we cannot do it anyway. We cannot lift ourselves up. It's impossible. The gospel is realistic, and it addresses our need, and it's more than an invitation, and it's better than good advice. It does more. It persuades. It convicts. It reveals the truth. It reveals the truth of our needs, our sin, our hope. It's more than just another idea. It's the truth, and the truth has power for holiness, and, and it's a thing which can set us free. And all the truth is power for holiness. All that truth about the Word of God razor sharp and precise and it penetrates our hearts and souls and it divides between the merely human and the spiritual the soft and living and the calcified hardness between the thoughts and attitudes of the heart God lays bare our inner being through the gospel and places us in our inner person before the judgment seat of God when we tell someone the good news about Jesus Christ, it's as though we're using some kind of a powerful tool which changes the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's not just words or not just human words at work. It's the power of God at work. One commentator put it this way. When the gospel enters a person's life, it's as though the very fire of God had come upon him. There's warmth and light in gospel is power for salvation. It's, it's not just power to live a better life, though that comes in its own time and its own way. It's power for salvation, a salvation which is complete and from our sins and from judgment and hell and eternal death and the wrath of God. It's salvation unto God and for God and for eternal life and for heaven. It's forever. It's not of our own effort, but by faith and faith alone. The theological deductions, uh, the distinctions we can make from the various texts concerning salvation are helpful here. Salvation, which is a general term, is revealed in different aspects as the initial act of justification. When we first put our faith in Christ, when our sins were forgiven, when we were born again and made right with God because of the blood of Christ. 
then that ongoing effect of uh, salvation is sanctification, where we're being renewed in the likeness of God. And even though sin still dwells in us, we're being made holy, we're being sanctified. And the final result of our salvation is glorification, where we will no longer be subject to sin or its failures, where we will bear the completed image of Christ in us, and we can no longer die. Salvation is always a work of God, completely his work, and none of ours. We merely appropriate it by faith. Salvation is a complete work of God, a new creation. It was Tyndale, the, the great the martyr translator of God's word, who said something to the effect that salvation is about a new creation. God is not a patcher the old. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Salvation is for those who believe. The gospel has power to change our hearts, and indeed it moves us in that direction. But we can resist it, and that's our natural bent. Or we can accept it. We can put our faith in what Christ has done. That is, we can believe not just as a fact, but in a commitment of our hearts to God. And when we trust God to do what God says he'll do, we're saved. God will not force you. The gospel has done everything you need so that you may believe. It has revealed the truth so you may know your But you still must choose. As one man put it, it's not man's faith that gives the gospel its power. Quite the contrary, it's the power of the gospel that makes it possible for one to believe. Power in the gospel. One last comment about this verse before we move on. Paul says the gospel is first for the Jew and then for this is the first reference in this letter to an issue um, the Roman church was facing, which was, what was the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile? What we need to understand now is, though there's a kind of a division here, it's much more of an equality. For Christ died for all, and he is Lord of all, and one gospel saves all. Yet the Gentiles must never forget that God, by his choice and wisdom, chose to send salvation through the Jewish people. But then the Jews uh, must understand they were not chosen just for themselves. They were to be a conduit so that the rest of the world could come to God. So we're obligated to the lost to bring them the gospel, which is the power of God to save them just as it has saved us. However, not only is the gospel power for God to save us, it also reveals the righteousness of God which we may live, by which we may live through faith. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, the righteousness 
uh, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And we might ask, just what does that mean? Does the gospel reveal the righteousness which God is? Or does it mean the righteousness gives to, or to use a theological term, imputes to those people who believe? Well, the context certainly points to the second idea. The righteousness which is of God is revealed and comes by faith, and it's how we live. God imputes righteousness to those who believe. This is not too complex. A little bit. So stay with me. It's also reveals God's own righteousness in that sin's not glossed over, but dealt with in a decisive way through the death of his son. Maybe we should understand that God righteous, and God is love, and to be truly righteous, one must be truly loving, and to be truly loving, one must be truly righteous, and so the redemption, the righteous, loving God provided for our redemption, his righteousness through love providing for our redemption to righteousness. Does that make sense to you? Do you you follow that? Let me repeat it. The righteous, loving God provided for our redemption. His righteousness through love providing for our redemption to righteousness. When we put our trust in Christ and what he did on that cross, God wraps us in the righteousness of his son. Now let's understand better what's going on in this text. It says the gospel reveals this righteousness, which is God's righteousness for us. And the verb here, to reveal, is grammatical. It's meaning passive. And what that means to us is, is that God is the one who made it known to us. He reveals it. And if God did not it, we could not have discovered it on our own. Now, it doesn't mean that the gospel is something completely new. It was, after all, a matter of prophecy in multiple ways and times, and even the quote here uh, from Habakkuk in this verse points to that. And the entire ceremonial law prefigured it. The Old Testament's law and prophecy pointed to what God was going to do. And when Christ came, he he fulfilled the Old Testament, uh, everything about it, and everything became clear. That is, he made clear what was only hinted at. But even then, after Christ had come, without God revealing, we would never have gotten it. Our hearts would have remained in the darkness if God had not something else about this revealing that you should know. <laughs> tense. Another grammatical term. But the tense is active. Which means the revealing is still going on now. Do you understand what we're being told here? We're being told that God is active while we're sharing our faith. When we tell someone uh, the gospel, there's power in that. 
And God is at work revealing his righteousness, turning on the lights in their hearts so they can know God's righteousness for them, for all of us in Christ. And that's something really good to know. And to complete our understanding of this verse, we want to note some more things. First, faith as a basis for salvation is not new. No one other than Jesus has ever been justified by their own actions. Everyone who has ever been saved is just that. They're saved. And the salvation has come to them by faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith as they expected God to provide for their salvation, while the New Testament saints are saved by faith as we look back on God's provision for our salvation. And second, when it says the righteous will live by faith, that life is referring to eternal life which God gives. And that is God's life in us. Only the righteous can have that kind of life. Therefore, only the righteous will live. And the only way anyone may be made righteous is by faith in God, in what he has done and who he is. God is revealing his righteousness through the gospel, which is powerful. But let, let me tell you one more thing, which I think will make this a little bit more real and maybe a little clearer. Later on in this same letter, Paul tells us uh, that he had done all that he could do uh, in the areas he had been ministering in. And so now it was time for him to move on into new territories, one of which was Rome, after which, Lord willing, he would go on to Spain. You understand, don't you, that that doesn't mean no one else in those areas would ever come to Christ. What it means is that God would now use a different tool. That was and is a part of his plan. After the evangelist had done his work, the new believers would come into the faith by the testimony, by the long walk of faithfulness of the everyday The witness of those uh, uh, who live and work and play in their community. Rubbing shoulders with the lost. That's how now God means to bring people into the kingdom. It's not that the evangelists won't still come from time to time to areas like Paul administered in, yet they're no longer the mainstay of God's work in those places. The everyday Pastors will have their places, yes. But we're also everyday believers. We do bring something else to the table. I understand that. But that, too, is best understood when we think of it as a long obedience to the same direction. You see, it's true to say that many people who would never come to Christ through the preaching of an evangelist will come to him through the same constant testimony of everyday believers. Simply put, they need you. 
part of a chain. We're part of that same chain. God sent us. I know that's amazing, isn't it, that he sends us to those we're indebted to. But he does. And he sends us with his gospel, which is powerful, to save. We have to, I know at some point, as we're led by the Spirit, we have to tell other people what that gospel is. And it is powerful when we do that. And when we're doing that, God himself is revealing his righteousness. He's bringing that home to their heart so that when it is mixed with faith, God gives them some of his righteousness. He wraps them in Christ's righteousness and so wrap they live and they live forever how could we ever be ashamed of that you are vital link an essential element an important and the chain that God is using to save pray who's equal to such a task Understand, Lord, that left to ourselves, none of us are. But you haven't left us to ourselves. You sent your Son, and you've given us your Spirit, and you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Help us. Help me to lift up the 